out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the singer, performer and writer. It's Dana Gillespie, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love poetry and everything else. Um, She has just got a book out titled Weren't Born a Man that is just available from all good bookshops and also online. Um, Dana Gillespie worked with the likes of David Bowie, Tony DeFries, Main Man, Mick Ronson and many, many more. She's had a full life, starting right back there in the early 60s. But anyway, enough of that. After several minutes of casual chat, we got down to the important question about the book and uh, why. Why did it all come together? Dana, tell us. Tell us more. Tell us now. Well, two reasons. One is that everyone said if I don't write it now, then there'll be nobody left alive who can remember some of the people I talk about in the 50s or 60s. I mean, there's that television show 6-5 special that, um, from night in, the, in the end of the 50s, early 60s, and there was a woman organist called Cherry Wayner, and I always wanted to know what colour her padded organ was. And if somebody knows, then I know how old they are. So for the older people, they'll know about kind of crazy things like that but I'm still alive and I'm still kicking and doing gigs and have worked with an amazing amount of people so and also I'm the daughter of a great raconteur I'm a good raconteur as I tell a decent story around a dinner table and everyone said just put kept, keep putting it down so I did kind of start it and and called it I rest my case which actually was the title of an album I did aces three albums ago and and i got kind of from a to z but i'm no good with all the business things and and i I went to a couple of um publishers and they said yeah we really like it i know you'll get a deal but um you just it's not quite right for us i think i'd kind of gone to the wrong people and then suddenly i thought right now this has to be done and with the help actually i did have in the end having written it i got a co-author in called david shasha who who kind of put certain things in chronological order he's a retired lawyer and managed to put some um, um right way right things i'm very bad on dates so i can't remember what i was doing and so he managed to come up with these facts yes that's that's important it's interesting because i've done a few interviews recently of a particular photographer who's 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 just brought his book out um, i think his name's bob gruen who did a lot of work in the 60s and 70s and eight well he, well all his life and he could write the book but it wasn't going to be publishable so he had to get someone who could write to sort of take his words keep them as his but make sure the whole thing read properly and and so he he had a sort of a co-writer as well well i actually had written as in typed out with my two fingers on the old computer but then actually i'd written too many stories and the editor the editing work which comes from the publisher i mean the book was about 500 pages he said people will lose the will to live you know and they you know please we're gonna have to cut some stories out so i'm already thinking volume two and let's face it some of the people that i've mentioned in the book have just died one of them in particular so i could probably you know elaborate a bit more on some certain stories but it had to be not too long that but it is quite long and it's got something like somebody told me i haven't counted it up i think it's about 150 pictures or in 64 pages 
Polaroids uh, from the days of the early 70s when I, David Bowie and I had the same manager and our manager, Tony DeFries, gave me a Polaroid and said, keep snapping away. So I did. And so there's lots of really un, you know, unseen before photographs in it. Yes, and and and, and obviously, your your sort of your CV. That sounds a bit, I don't know, cold, doesn't it? CV, but you know, it is quite an extraordinary story, isn't it? Because you, you, you a you're a survivor, which is quite unbelievable. Because let's face it, most people end up in the gutter, dribbling, talking about how good <laughs> well, they. Still time for that. <laughs> still time. I could certainly dribble. Yeah, <laughs> but you, you know, but also what was kind of amazing was that you were there at the birth of kind of I suppose you could call it the birth of the teenager vaguely, and the birth of the counterculture and the, and the Beatles and 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 what I've noticed because I've done quite a lot of interviews with people from that period, like the sixties, like you know Barry Miles and. And they had that exhibition at the V&A, you know, So You Want a Revolution. And it was like asking people like him, like, well, what, why didn't you sort of go into the 70s? And he said, well, we were a bit tired. We just had enough after five years. So most people, I realise, have a, a bit of a five-year narrative, if they're lucky, that zeitgeist moment. But then the next scene comes along and they think, no, I can't. That's not my scene. But you managed to go from the 60s into the 70s in a big way, which was quite extraordinary. Well, 60s, of course, were slightly folky. Besides, I was still pretty young. I mean, you know, mid-60s, I was mid-teenager and and couldn't afford a band, so went out strumming my 12-string guitar. Myself and Bowie both were keen on the 12-string because it made more noise with less talent. <laughs> you know, it kind of filled out sound, and he was quite folky as well in a quirky, odd way when I first met him. And then... In the 70s, of course, that's when Bowie and I had the same manager. So life had become glamorous and Bowie's wife, Angie, did the shopping for Bowie and myself. And I find myself in ridiculous Manolo Blahnik stilettos. I think you can see some of the pictures in the book. And um, and then, of course, I, you know, I did get to do the odd musical like I was the first Mary Magdalene in Jesus Christ Superstar, but my heart was always in the blues, but my voice hadn't caught up with my heart. You need to be really strong, and and it's music has kept me going through. By the end of the 70s, and Main Man, which is the company that had managed myself and Bowie, had collapsed, and litigations left, right, and centre, and Bowie left for America, and I stayed in England because I'm a serious European person, don't want to live in America. And um, uh, I really had ripened into singing the blues because I know what it's like to have, you know, really had weird times. You need experience in order to sing about blues. I mean, I some of the naughtier songs that I sing now, like, that came from the Blue Job album, like Big Ten Inch and Come On If You're Coming. Although I liked to sing that kind of stuff when I was 15 or 16, I didn't have a band and it might have sounded might have sounded a bit pornographic. But now I'm a kind of uh, a, an aged Technicolor diva so I can get away with whatever I like. And you've got to have a sense of humour in this world. So I'm still out there, still rocking. Yes. But you, you're calling me from Norfolk and... One of my first ever gigs in 1965 was in East Dereham. I've never forgotten it. And in 1964, I think, or 65, no, it must have been earlier than that, I did a, a summer season at the end of the Britannia Pier in Great Yarmouth. That is beautiful. That is amazing, isn't it? <laughs> it was with The Who, 
The Hollies, Tom Jones and PJ Proby. Now, you don't, there aren't package tours like that anymore, unfortunately. No. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> I would imagine. But be, even before that, you know, because there's a, a lot of people, actually not many, but occasionally people have an amazing sort of like fact and, and one that sort of stops everyone in their track. But you were the British Junior Water Ski Champion. So how did that come about? Well, well, I used to be rather good at snow skiing and I was in one of the junior teams for Britain until I was caught in an avalanche that should have killed me, but didn't. And 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 I sort of started water skiing thinking it would keep me in trim for snow skiing in the winter seasons. And in fact, I excelled more at water skiing than snow skiing. And probably due to, you know, if you train in England, you need some puppy fat on you. And I've always been kind of puppy fatty, still got it now at my age. So, you know, I've never been skin and bones. And so you need that because you spend a lot of time in the water. And it was very good for me to have that kind of a discipline. I think I won the championship the first time when I was 13. So I was a tough old soul. Um, you know, but it, 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 I, I kind of forget about those facts. I mean, when, I, when you talk to me about it, it's like another... It's another another life I lived. It feels so long ago. Well, yes, absolutely. And uh, but the interesting, just going back to that sort of sixties when you started with the folk thing, and and obviously David was doing his stuff with Hermione and and making some pretty um, kind of what, what I've always been amazed about is that when you know you had the Beatles, Stones, the Kinks, the Who, then Jimi Hendrix, the whole West Coast stuff. David was releasing records that I thought I couldn't imagine who would have bought them if you had the choice between some of his stuff that was coming out and then you know oh should I buy the first Doors album it's like oh no I think I'll you know what I mean it's kind of it was a you know of the stuff he well, made people weren't buying his, his early <laughs> no. stuff that was the problem he was on a small label that was a a a, a, a sort of an, a small... I was signed to Decca at that time, and he was signed to this DRAM label, which was a subsidiary of Decca. And I don't think it really sold, but um, the moment Mick Ronson kind of stepped, in, stepped into his life, he gave the songs that David had done... You know, suddenly there's an electric guitar, gave it gravitas, and moved it seriously up many notches so that it sounded more more rounded like a kind of a a, a rock thing yes. um, Mick Ronson was very influential but I don't think he's ever been given the credit that was due and of course don't forget that we then had one of the most brilliant managers ever Tony DeFries who obviously I mean David was that bit older than me and more ready for mega global stardom obviously I was kind of the number two in the stable there but you know, without a great manager, you can be the most talented person in the world, but if you're sitting at home and nobody hears you, you've got to be very lucky too, and we were very lucky to meet this guy. So for four or five years, he absolutely worked and worked on David, who then was, anyway, all David had to do was write songs and grow as a performer. Yes. That's all was ever asked of me too. What joy, you know, when a manager comes along and says to you, what musicians do you want? Where do you want to record? Let's do this. Do you want to do that? Should we tour here? He organized everything. And with those kind of facilitating treasures laid at your feet, you you would be a fool not to take it. And, and it was 
a marvelous five years of my life. Wouldn't swap it for anything. No, because yeah. So 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 Tony DeFries and the whole main man's sort of stable was kind of extraordinary. And, and sort of listening to various interviews with Tony and all that kind of stuff. What was kind of interesting was that when the sixties finished, not you know, completely finished. But, you know, there was definitely, you know, a feeling that the, the party had gone a little bit wrong. You know, Jimi Hendrix had died, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, you'd had Altamont, Woodstock had been a bit of a disaster, and, but it filmed really well, so they made a nice film about it. And then and then that kind of next period started, and, and you had, you know, like in San Francisco, you had the Coquettes, and you had the Andy Warhol stuff in New York sort of begin, you know, to really start to take off as well. So... Did Tony DeFries and, say, Angie Bowie, were they part of that, that world that sort of elevated both you and David onto the next kind of trip? Because obviously, like any party, you've got to know when to quit before the washing up, you know, someone asks you to do all the washing up. Well, DeFries was a legal guy um, from in offices in Regent Street, was English, and I think was born in... East London. Angie, of course, loud, bold, sassy and American and made more noise than anyone else. And if she and David walked into a room, it was Angie your head turned to first because she was the loudest. He was quite shy and retiring in those days. But it was it was he was just he was on the right zeitgeist. Let's face it for um, sort of the glam rock thing, although Mark Boland did actually steal in a bit earlier than he did, uh, which probably spurred him on because they were very good friends. Um, I, it, it, there was there was kind of, it was crying out for another type of music. So he just happened to be in the right place at the right time. I've always felt with my music that people have never understood what I was doing because I grew up, started at an era when girl singers were always judged how they looked which men weren't in the 60s. And then they usually were told were singing other people's songs. And I was always a songwriter. I always wanted to sing my own songs. And mercifully, the man at Decca Records in 1966 or something said, yes, you can do my second album, which was all self-written songs. And, and so I kind of slightly broke the mould, but it wasn't, I wasn't singing about things that would have been instantly on top of the pops. No. It was a bit of an oddball. Yes, it's a, it's a sort of strange one for sort of women, apart from people like, well, I suppose Janis Joplin, but then there was Grace Slick. And um, there, was, there wasn't a lot of people who were holding their own at that stage, was there? So you must yeah, have felt... Are, you're talking about American women. Yes. You know, the music... There's, people don't understand now that America was like on another planet in the 60s. I mean, most people, a lot of people after the war didn't have passports. People weren't going away on holidays. So to go to America or even to think of breaking America in the early 60s was unthought of. I mean, nobody English had really ever done it. So I think... Maybe Frank Ifield had I remember you that had hit over there, but it was not a place that you thought of going to. So how American women were approached was very different to us poor girls because there were kind of Sandy Shaw, Dusty, Lulu, um, and, you know, everyone wore nice little dresses, and I'm in there in a pair of jeans. Yes, so absolutely. It was, it was a, you know, but folky stuff was quite good in the 60s, so that's why I stuck with it. It was easy. And when you, because you worked or um, was on the first ever Jesus Christ Superstar soundtrack, weren't you? And this, is this the one with Ian Gillen on as well? No, no, you're talking about, no, that had Yvonne Elliman singing Mary. 
Um, that actually was put out as a record, but wasn't a stage show at that time. What I was in was the first live show record, um, performance at the Palace Theatre in London. And um, it was a very shocking thing to do. It sounds pathetic now, but we used to have to fight through picketing nuns at the stage door <laughs> saying how blasphemy it, it, it was, which it shocked people to have the word Jesus Christ next to superstar. But the moment opening night happened, um, and I think somebody like the Archbishop of Canterbury was in the audience and had given it a thumbs up, and it was a is a very reverent show, you know, it's just, it was different then. It was a great thing to do. I mean, I did it for a year and then I actually had to leave because I had to have a mother first of four knee operations, having been damaged in the avalanche in Switzerland and then all that water skiing and then doing these shows. I was doing dance classes every day. I was so super fit um, that my knee gave out. So, but now I've got a, two new knees. So I'm, I'm absolutely delighted with life. Pain is gone. God, that's amazing, because um, that's been a story that's run through your life pretty much. Yeah, now. I used to walk uh, sometimes with a walking stick, but not, I tried not to on stage unless it was really bad. Yes. And obviously the, the high heels, the stilettos, the outrageous clothing toned down a bit as I got older, because now I couldn't think of anything worse than spending an evening tottering on high heels. I like to be firmly on the ground. Yes, absolutely. I think I think heels are heels are going to look so passe. But as the seventies progressed, and you know, obviously you were part of the you know the main man studio um, stable. 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 It was definitely a stable, wasn't it? Did that? I mean, because Tony DeFries does sound like an absolutely extraordinary character. But you know, and when you look back at something, it all seems pretty okay. But at the time, it must have seemed pretty bonkers because, again, you know. The Beatles had only sort of like had been there from 83 to, you know, 1970. And then, you know, De Vries comes along. So, you know, the youth culture had only been, you know, that what we're talking about. It's only been around for about 10 years, which is nothing really. And then you had this kind of quite of interesting but kind of amazing visionary, really, you know, taking well, he, a big... Was he taking a big gamble on, on his well, life? Yes, financially as well, but also give, giving up his time to, you know, form Main Man and to start it and get it <clears throat> up and running and creating a mystique and then leaving from uh, going to America. I mean, the offices were on Park Avenue. And by this time, Bowie had come back from what, some wild trip to America to promote one of his early productions. And he'd, he'd gone to see an Andy Warhol production of a show called Pork, filled with everything weird and probably unmentionable on your radio show on stage. And some people... And naked, of course. Okay, Pete, did you know that Bowie and I had both auditioned for hair and we both got turned down? But that's <laughs> another story. Anyway, he, he's very full of this, all these American actors called Pork, and he he tortured DeFries, and DeFries then gave them all jobs as as running, as being in the main men company. So when everyone, we all went to America, so you had, uh, you had really unusual people working for the company. We were... Bowie and I were both signed to RCA, obviously got, you know, pretty good advances, but they all sort of went to running main man. And it, it was perfect for five years. And then, uh, I don't know, well, then Bowie and, didn't, and DeFries had a bit of fallout. I was happy coasting along because I was having a good time. I was doing gigs, working with fabulous musicians. I was writing songs. I was 
in my element um and and but they had this mega fallout that always happens when money is involved uh, unfortunately and it took quite a few years till the whole thing the litigations were over which was mine as well because i was stuck in the middle i couldn't record for anyone from the mid 70s to 1980 by which time i'd you know done some films as usual falling out of chamois leather outfits for hammer films or you know being large busted i spent my whole life with a cleavage uh, not self uh, not um surgically enhanced i might add because i'm very anti that and and so by 1980 i really knew that i was ready to do what i loved the most musically which was the blues and i was old enough to get away with it and my voice, or my chops, as they call it in the music biz, um, was getting more and more bluesy in style. And even my second album for Main Man in the mid-70s was called Ain't Gonna Play No Second Fiddle, and it was an old Bessie Smith song from the 1930s. And I just, my leanings were becoming more my my living, and, and that was really good. It changed my life. And anyway, you can tell, if you're doing pop singing, which is basically what I was doing being glamorous in the Bowie era, there's a sell-by date. You have to either reinvent yourself or evolve onwards. And uh, so I just moved onwards and upwards and forgot about the glamour bit, which was, that was much more Angie's idea to get everyone glamorous. And Bowie himself was quite a glamour puss. Yes, he loved the lens. He definitely loved the lens, didn't he? He, Yep. um, but yeah, because because I was just thinking, you know, you would you know talked about pork, and you had those characters like Cherry Vanilla, and they're also Tony um, Sonetta, who I interviewed recently. And I mean, it's quite an extraordinary story. One minute you're there in pork doing the whole Andy Warhol stuff, then working with David, and then you get dropped, and then you just have to get on with the rest of your life. I mean, you must do in this book kind of realize that you know, dodging those moments where things can just, you you kind of end up being, I don't know, like one of those characters from, you know, like the Andy Warhol, Edie Sedgwick, you know, one minute, you know, she's yeah. a superstar, then she's dropped and, and kind of like you realise that she's been frozen out and she realised that. And not being a casualty in all this, especially during that period, because there weren't many people you could look back and think, oh, let me let me look at the narrative of what happens here. You were kind of at the front of that that world of of popular culture so to speak or youth culture or the alternative scene so you know that did you do you sort of look at yourself when writing that book and just reflecting that you you know you you were sort of lucky not to have had that kind of horrible experience of it all sort of coming crashing in you know crashing down it, it sort of did come crashing in a way when I could when I wasn't free to record for others while the litigation was going on and suddenly I'd lost um Bowie had gone to America, so I'd kind of lost him. You know, he was had he, as a friend. I mean, I'm talking about only as a friend. Angie had they got divorced, so she was in America. I'd lost her. DeFries disappeared off to Switzerland and then South Africa. I'd lost them, and we'd been a really tight knit family. So I know what it's like to come a cropper. But what has always saved me is the music. People, I think were usually quite busy in the old days of judging me on my looks. It's always a mistake to judge anyone on their looks. It's far better to judge somebody by all the things you can't see, like their good nature or, you know, their vibe or whatever. So I I knew that I I was lucky because I was able to music was the, has been my master, has been my God 
since I can since I was eleven, and so this is what kept me going. I mean, I've never really been in fashion, so I can't go out of fashion. And uh, if if you know what I mean, I just keep kind of trucking on. And I think some people don't even realise I've actually made seventy albums. Um, and and so I just that music is what has kept me going. Whereas you know you can come a cropper and everyone that worked for main man in the office side went from high high days high days and holidays or whatever and having a great time and suddenly nothing but it's just the same as if somebody's got a job now and then the virus comes along and they're out of work yes and you've we've all got to have ghastly disappointments and bumps and jumps in our life and it's I kind of see it as riding a, on a surfboard. You know, you you hit a wave, might go well, you might fall off and cause, you know, sink or swim, but you've got to get up and get on another wave yes. if you want to get into the shore. And it's interesting because there's only a few people who've really had that passion with music. A lot of people have managed to sort of drop it, get a day job, and then sometimes use music or play music as a much more of a hobby. And then I've noticed, because I've done a lot of interviews with a lot of those kind of indie bands from the 80s, where, you know, they have the five-year narrative, which is lovely. You know, they get together, they make a single, John Peel played it. They get a John Peel session, the first album, things are going well, the band, the honeymoon period, you, you get the gist. The second album, mm, yeah. things are starting to get a little bit tetchy. And also there's a lack of money that everyone's feeling a bit still poor, even though they've got certain a certain sort of fan base and then you know it's things... not an easy profession david it's a it's a you know only an idiot would go into the music business but then it, it was it, if you've got a, a dream and a passion you've got to follow it and in those days i don't want to sound like a boring old fart but in those days if somebody made the commitment to be in the music business it was for very different reasons than maybe now now it's very, you know, there's been a lot of people going for it just for the money. We didn't in those days because nobody thought, I mean, even the Stones always said, oh, we'll be lucky if we'll be doing this in two years' time. <laughs> and then we'll all have to get normal jobs. That's how we all kind of went into it. Nobody was thinking, I'm going to be a mega star. I mean, maybe Bowie was underneath it. No, I don't think he was think. people don't think like that. You you just do the best you can and, and you hope and pray that somebody's going to, understand what you're trying to do and and like you for it love yes. you for it well absolutely and each I mean, it doesn't fit quite that neatly, but each decade does have a different sort of vibe to it. And a lot of artists who, are, say, had got, you know, had got that, you know, zeitgeist moment in the 70s, really struggled in the 80s. And David's work, you know, some, you know, went quite well with Let's Dance and then it went down. Um, and then, you know, there was other people like Rod Stewart and, and Robert Plant. You know, you their 80s work looks as bad as, as exciting as their haircuts, which are a little bit mullet, mullet <laughs> airs, can't they? They're not good. The Fashions, you know, and suddenly artists who were leading the way suddenly look like they're sort of trying to follow what's happening, which is kind of a bit of a disaster, as you know, from being an artist. But you you managed to sort of navigate the 80s with finding your passion with the blues. So you must have felt quite a relief that you didn't go suddenly in for that kind of Trevor Horn-esque kind of production sound jumping around on top of the pops trying to compete with, I don't know, Kim Wilde. Well, I would, I would have enjoyed that too. I'm kind of easy and I've done techno music i mean i've done a few albums in sanskrit where they've it's been technoed up nobody quite understood i understood my sanskrit but 
they didn't. I, I think one thing may well be to do with money, because I know a lot of my rock and roll friends who really made it big. I won't name drop, but I could, but I won't. And they've made so much money and they're so famous, they can't just go out and play in little gigs because they're too famous. They're used to doing a stadium or two. And when you've got all that money, you don't actually... I think it kind of kills the desire to get out there and do more. You've kind of done it. You've got so big that where can you go? And DeFries always used to say to me, that, and Bowie too, you know, never forget that the pathway going upwards, trying to make it, is actually the most interesting. Because when you get to the top, where can you go? But you can only go downhill. So a lot of my friends are either dead or they've made it, and they've made it so well you know, some of these globe, global megastars. I'm not talking about the Rolling Stones because they seem to be still touring forever. But most of them, they, they do, they've they got a great house, they've got children, they're interested in gardening or racing cars or, you know, they don't they don't need to go out and gig. Um, it's They've done it all, so why should they? Yes, absolutely. But as with a lot of things that happen, you know, one gets a bit existential in life and you you also sort of find, you know, sort of became sort of, um, as with a lot of friends I had as well, you know, become sort of interested in a spiritual path. So when did that that sort of side develop in your life? Well, actually, even when I was 12 or 13 or something, I was very lucky. I had a really intelligent, marvellous father. So he'd, he'd give me books from, you know, Jung, Nietzsche, Gurdjieff, Kierkegaard, things like that. When I was very young, this was in my library. And then, of course, in the 60s with people like Jimmy Page or something, when he was just a session musician, we'd go and listen to Indian music. Now, I mean, and we had, everyone had books of spirituality, or, and in his case, he had lots of black magic stuff as well. So everyone got interested in these things. And then, you know, when the acid came along, that added a bit of spice to everyone's life to open a few more doors, either in your heart or your mind. And, and, and you know, I saw it happening definitely with the Beatles. But with me, um, a major change happened 40 years ago because I read a book about this uh, Indian guru who's now dead. Uh, he died about six years ago called Sai Baba. And I was very taken with this. And I thought... Hot damn, if somebody's walking on the earth, and I've read all these books about spiritual people, but where are they? They're not walking around, certainly not in South Kensington, where I live. You know, where are they? And India started to call to me. So I, I did something I never do. I leapt on a, a plane three weeks later to see Sai Baba, thinking he was bound to say, hello, I've been waiting for you. And there were thousands and thousands and thousands that were sitting, waiting for his audience when he'd come out and walk through the crowd every day. And, of course, he ignored me for 12 years. Um, but I just had a feeling I was learning something, so I kept going back for a couple of weeks every time, every year, a few times. And, you know, people like George Harris and Ravi Shankar and so many famous people, uh, but in a lot of Indians, too, had gone to see Sai Baba, and I just sat quietly in the crowd. But my life changed very much when he asked me to sing for his 70th birthday. And I sang nearly every year. This was in front of nearly a million people. I mean, bigger than Woodstock. <laughs> and and I'd just done some of my Indian uh, albums. I, I, it's a type of music called bhajans. It's sort of devotional songs. And I was 
or feeling rather holy about the whole thing. And I was told, no, he wanted me to sing in this massive stadium, uh, my blues. And that put me in a quandary because actually I'm rather well known for all the rudest blues on the planet. You can't go out and sing songs like Big Ten Inch and come on if you're coming <laughs> to a crowd of people who've come to seek a spiritual master. So I had to keep the same groove but write intelligent lyrics that would be uplifting and so I've, I've enjoyed doing that because it's sort of they've got double meanings I might sing a song called I did sing that evening actually a song called Big Daddy Blues because I used to call him Big Daddy for a bit of a laugh and and other people would think I would be singing about something completely different <laughs> so it depends which way you look at things. So, but it was good for me to have a bit of spirituality. You can't stay the same all your life. You've got to move forwards, onwards and upwards. Yes, hopefully. absolutely. And, and that's, that's, you know, always the way. I mean, you know, I sort of used to sort of be with a lot of new age people and, you know, everyone was, for, I don't know, 10 years of my life, people were sort of shooting off in every direction you could imagine trying to find something, which seemed quite exhausting. looking for something. So, yeah, it does seem a bit exhausting. And, then it, and there's a lot of cliches, though, as well, aren't there? with the spiritual world so that in a way you know you know what it's like some of the things that people people say or come up with or they end up saying you know the beginning the ends at the beginning and the beginning is where you're at and you think okay let me think about that <laughs> what books have you been reading <laughs> well it's you know it's it's just one more step that people do i mean I don't want to spend my old age staring at some sort of brainless thing on television, I, you know, a soap opera or something. I, I, I'm living a really amazing life, and there is a lot. There are a lot of answers to spirituality, but I mean, other people might think it's a boring path to go down. Not at all. It's a whole lot of fun. And then when you've got blues gigs as well, and I'm always busy, so I have a pretty wonderful life. I'm so lucky. I mean, I'm so lucky that I'm still breathing today. <laughs> and I know everyone's talking about lockdown and things, but I'm quite a solitary person. So I I haven't had a bad time. I go for a walk every morning around Hyde Park at six o'clock in the morning when it's still dark and you don't see anyone and you watch the the day wake up. I mean, this is the old hippie in me, which I'm very proud that I was one. I yes. had rocker leanings as well, though, because of the music. And did you, I mean, because obviously David also had that, that side of him, you know, sort of that spiritual journey and, and sort of Buddhism as well. So, I mean, was that a kind of a fashion, I mean, not in a horrible way, but not in a cheap way, but, you know, was there, was there just that feeling of the counterculture during the 60s of searching for something beyond what we had been sort of used to from school with family and, and sort of then, for some people, obviously, it, it stayed with them all their life? I, I don't know if searching was the right word when we were younger. It was just having fun, and it's sort of like stepping on stepping stones over a river. You know, one stone, you look for the next one to step on, and you hope you get to the other side without having fallen in. It's not actually... I've never felt I was actually searching for something. Just things come your way, and you either get on board that train or not. Um, and in fact, with... I never felt both. Bo most people who have a spiritual inner life um, don't really talk that much about it. There's an old Sufi saying, he who knows talks about it, and he who doesn't know keeps stum, keeps quiet. And I agree with that. I mean, Bowie never talked about what was going on inside him. Mind you, I knew him at that era when he was far too busy being a party animal, and his career was kind of shooting up very high. But when you... 
when you get a little bit older, you do kind of mellow out, and then you do start to search for different modes of existence because you cannot go on and be like you used to be. All my wild chums, as I said, they're either dead or they've gone mellow. Yes, It's absolutely. an age thing too. Yeah, and also because, you know, it must be quite shocking, you know, when you were doing the book, suddenly coming across, oh, this person, oh, yes, they've passed, oh, that person died in a car crash, you know, and feeling, did did that feel, did that feel quite, did having to process that, did that take quite a lot of work or had you already... Um, no, because I was lucky. I had parents that were very philosophical. And, uh, and you know, I look around at the various guys I've I've known and had in my life in every sense. And, yeah, they're all pushing up daisies now. They've, they've died. Um, and, uh, you know, I could step out of my front door in about five minutes and a brick's going to fall on my head and I'll be next. I don't really think too much about it because there's sod all we can do and uh it, sometimes i miss um the guy who did all my artwork i talk about him in the book jörg huber was a very famous austrian artist well i miss him but i miss his pussycats too i mean you know i miss animals very much in my life my mother who comes who lived for years in Aylsham, a village called marsham so it's just, i don't know if you know marsham oh yes it's, on the, it's it's just it's probably about 10 miles outside of norwich and uh you know, she's not there, so I can't dump my... I used to keep Norwich Terriers, and I can't dump them with her and go off on tour because I haven't got anyone to leave them with. So I've got no cats, no dogs, um, which is a shame, really. Um, but I still have a bit of family, by the way, that live in a place uh, called Kimberley Hall near Wyndham. And so I go up there and catch up with old cousins and things um, to remind myself... Sorry, I don't know how we landed up with talking about <laughs> Norfolk. That's me that's gone off on a tangent, tandem as usual. A tandem, um, indeed. <laughs> it's such a great part of the world. I'm a huge fan. Did you know that I actually rode in the Chroma Carnival a winning horse thing, which must have been in 1959, um, where there was a family called Gurneys, who are very cousins oh, of mine too. the Gurneys. And, right. Well, there's, there, there's three families in Norfolk where it used to be. They were called Buxton's, Gurneys, and Fry's. My mother was a Buxton, and the Gurneys all inter, kind of interrelated with kind of Quaker overtones, roots, I should say. And so Norfolk has been my second home, and I must be one of the few people that adores Steve Coogan's film Alpha Papa and watch it quite regularly when I'm away to show it to people and say, this, look at this, the Chroma Pier. Yeah, my dream was to do a concert at the Chroma Pier. I still have a dream to do it, but they'll never let me on. No, that's such a... <laughs> but, but look, one thing that's quite interesting, and it's about sort of surviving that world that is showbiz. I mean, because... And it, I did, you know, two interviews with um, Fayette and also Pam, who were part of the Coquettes. And it's like, my God, you've managed to survive that kind of wild period of lots of drugs, lots of sex, everything else that went on. A lot of people don't. And from, you know, looking at photographs of you in your 60s and 70, the 70s period, I mean, there is something that, you know, it's like, wow, you are, you know, there's a, there's a amazingly, you know, photography, you know, the beautiful, right? Okay. So how did, you know, when you look at that person, do you think, my God, I did well surviving? Because there was a, you know, this was the, this was before lots of, you know, people being a bit more careful about what they used to do. So, you know, are you a bit amazed that you survived it? 
Um, yeah, well, I'm amazed that I that I looked like I did in certain early pictures. I'm very lucky to have great photographers. I don't know if you noticed that from the book. Um, Gerard. Which, that it was Gerard Mankiewicz yes. who, who, who's, you know, did the iconic pictures of the Stones and, and Jimi Hendrix. And he's been a friend of mine since I was 15. So I've, I had the advantage of, you know, having a lot of help or hanging out with people that were really that was good in my career. You know, even the Jimmy Page producing this track off my first album. This is, I just happened to be with the right people. But yeah, some people might have said they were, it was an era of excess, but <laughs> it was an awful lot of fun. And um, so I don't, you know, uh, one thing that's kind of saved me, I think, actually, is I've never liked the taste of alcohol. So drink hasn't been, was never something I had to deal with. Much more worse for me was chocolate. And I've still got a terrible <laughs> leaning for chocolate. Um, but it was, a, it was a whole era where when I look back at the pictures, the, especially the Polaroids from, in my book, it is almost like somebody else because I really feel as if I've lived so many lives rolled into one. It's a very weird feeling. But I kind of live... For the moment, the, yes. you know, the power of now is kind of important to me. It's just I live for now and maybe what I've got to do in the next few days. Or you know, Yes, well, absolutely. Uh, you know, you never know what's I going on. I don't live in the past. And, and did you, and, <laughs> which is good. But, the, but how did you then cope when you, you know, like, you know, you hear so-and-so's died. But then when David died, that was such a moment, wasn't it? I mean, the world just literally went doom. And for me, you know, he was the my first single, my first album was David Bowie. So, you know, he was he, basically <laughs> your first love and you stick with him all your life or her. And he was that person. So I was absolutely devastated, but I didn't know him. But you had worked with him, you'd been with him, you'd seen him, you'd been in his bed. So what was what was it like to suddenly get bloody? <laughs> get to the point. To um, the... <laughs> well, yes. Uh, a lot of people, well, I remember, I think it was, was it January the 10th he died or the 8th? I can't remember. It was just around... His birthday, wasn't it? Uh, whenever it was, it just around his birthday in January. And <clears throat> so many people, when the moment he died, because he hadn't told anyone he'd be ill, that he was ill that there were people who'd never met him. I remember somebody like Madonna or Lady Gaga or both probably saying, I'm devastated, it's, you know, the end of an end of the world almost. And I've always said completely contrary to this. I think he had an amazing life and he did the ultimate for any musician. He managed to get a new album out three days before he died. I mean, that's the ultimate musician's dream. And I've always felt glad that he not that he that he died or that he left the planet but it's how it was meant to be and he did it as usual managing managing his life quite well so when he died my i just had my first knee replacement operation about 10 days earlier and i must have slightly off my head on on morphine because it's a really painful operation and they ease you off after about two weeks I was off it. I don't actually like the the feel of the stuff. It makes me feel nauseous but it's to kill the pain so that you can go right. through exercises yeah. and the BBC said, do you want to go to where he was born in Brixton and we'll film you from there and I said, no I can't stand, I'm on a walking stick. So I did I was taken to the BBC studios and they asked me what I thought of him and I said, I can't feel you know, shock, horror, 
that everyone else was going into sort of hysteria because I don't think like that. Uh, when somebody's gone, they've gone, and and he'd had a great life, and that's it. I I don't reg- I don't think about those things that could have been because there's no point. Yes, but I know that he did sort of slightly seem to reach out to a few people that I think he needed to say hi, like Trevor Boulder. And um, and I think he'd even got in touch with Hermione, hadn't he? So I just wondered if he'd sort of... And Brian Eno, he said, oh, we did some good work. And it was like, it's a bit of a weird email I just got from David. But did he ever sort of reach out to you towards the end? No. You know, once he was... Actually, I always thought that he was rather pissed off that I always stayed friendly with Angie. And, um, you know, even after they got divorced, I always felt, well, why, sh- why should I make choices, if you know yes. what I mean? Um but you know, once he was in America, his life was very much different. So he, it was basically after 1975. I ran after the Diamond Dogs tour when I was still in America. Um, I'm not very good at keeping in touch with anyone. I mean, I know exactly where, let's say, Jimmy Page lives, and I could pick up the telephone. But what for? Yes. You know, uh, if I bump into somebody who I've known from way back. They react amazingly, and one great thing that happened on my the memoirs weren't born a man is that I, the the um, publisher said, oh, we need some quotes on it, you know, some nice quotes from famous people. So somebody like Julian Clary, who who I've known since he was thirteen, that wasn't a problem. Um, Tim Rice, who wrote Superstar with Lloyd Webber, that wasn't a problem. But, you know, I used to work, I did these word recordings in the early 60s, mid-60s with Elton John when he was still Reg Dwight. And I thought it'd be really nice if he could give me a quote. And that man was so sweet, so lovely. Within 12 hours, I got a reply back and a great quote that's in the book. And, you know, but I don't pick up the telephone and go, hey, Elton, how are you doing? And it's just not my way. I get on with my life. And if I bump into somebody who I used to know way back, marvellous. If not, I knew them then. Move on. Yes, move on, as they say. That, um, yes, well, it, I mean, it's an amazing book. And I have to say, I mean, I know it's not going to sound cheap, but the photographs are stunning. I mean, it really is kind of one of those ones, isn't it? Um, I have read bits, but it's a PDF. But you know what I mean? It's, it's that you know, it's things... Have they seem... only sent you a PDF? Oh, well, I'm, I'm so non-techno. I mean, I know what it is, but it's not the same as actually holding the, phone, the a, a book in your hand. No, it's... I'm, but I'm old school. Um, yes. I kind of, uh, I like things that are... You can actually hold. I don't look at screens. It gives me a headache. Well, it also feels very ephemeral that you just go, oh, I've just deleted it. Whereas a book, you know, you might have dropped it <laughs> or you might spill it, but you can't quite, like, oh, I'll spill coffee on it. But, you know, that's that's another thing. Yes, I, I, I love the quotes. And it's great that Elton, who was such a star, you know, was all there. And as well as um, Rick Wakeman, the great Rick Wakeman yes. from Dis. Yeah, well, Rick was, because well, he was on... He was on my Weren't Born a Man album in 73, as well as obviously playing with Bowie. Um, And so, you know, I've I've got a track record and I can contact these people. And there's that story in the book about when I was um, the opening act for Bob Dylan and I couldn't find a drummer for that night to do the Wembley place and... uh, because my drummer had to do a, a contracted gig for Lonnie Donegan, lovely Chris Hunt. And I rang every drummer in London... And nobody was free, and there was only one that I'd met 
very briefly and didn't really know him very well, but it was Roger Taylor from Queen. So I rang him up and I said, Roger, can you do, um, can you come and play with me in three days' time at Wembley for opening for Bob Dylan? And he was such a pro, he said, no problem. <laughs> and that's great that somebody like that, I mean, obviously, but that was just when Freddie, I think, was no more. So he was free to actually do some gigs. And anyway, who else would be so well acquainted with playing such a huge stadium environment so he could do that? But that's, I've been very lucky with people from the music business. I've, I've stayed friendly with them, but I don't have to see them every day. Yes, which nobody, is... None of my mates live near... I mean, everyone's moved. Nobody goes anywhere these days. I might see people on other uh, festivals if I'm doing... The fe well, nobody's seeing any fe any festivals at the moment, so... But I love it when you uh, there's a big kind of a festival and you've got four or five acts on it and then you just get to see your old mates and make some new pals as yes, well. Yes, absolutely. And does that, because I saw you at the Norwich Arts Centre and you had the Dave Thomas Blues Band backing you, is that, I mean, obviously that is the way it goes with you, you know, and, and is that as a performer and as the front person, does that always feel quite straightforward rather than having a set gang that you you work with and you employ? Well, I do have a set gang. I've got the London Blues Band and they do most of my gigs, but... When I go to the Norfolk area, I mean, Dave Thomas is a fantastic singer, great guitarist. The whole band's really, really good. Can't fault them at all. But they live up, you know, I live in London. So, you know, most of my gigs are actually around London, except for the one I'm doing um, on the 12th of December outside of Norwich or near Wyndham. Yes. And uh, what did I just tell you? It was called the B Bannum Barrel. It's a ba Bannum, Bannum Barrel. I think it's... Um... I think, anyway, any excuse to just come up and play in Norfolk so I can see some of my relations. But Dave Thomas's band is, is a joy to perform with. But he's, he actually emailed me this morning, can I do a blues gig with him next October on the 23rd? So I said, yes. Absolutely. But normally I have the London Blues Band. And then I work a lot on the continent with a an Austrian boogie-woogie pianist called Joachim Palden and his trio with a girl drummer, which is unusual. And so, and I've worked with him since 1980, so I kind of bounce between the two countries. Uh, or, And then I do periods when I'm in studios or something. There's always something to do. Life is never boring. Yes. Um, so theoretically, what have you got lined up for next year? Have you got any new material or, or sort of um, any more well, studio work? Well, I have got new material in as much as um, with the guitarist that I work with now, Jake Zeitz, who's part of the London Blues Band, I said in, in July, when lockdown was already sort of happening, but I had some gigs in Switzerland, which was unusual. They weren't that, they weren't that locked down then. So the band came out and I'd written lyrics for a whole album and we recorded it out there. It's called Deep Pockets. It's still got to be mixed. So that's got to be mixed and will come out hopefully in the spring next year but i'm working on another project which is slightly more ethereal spiritual and trancey um i'm not sure what that's going to be called but i'll get into studios to do that in january then um people keep saying i've got to turn the weren't born a man book into a talking book so i'll probably do that and add some little bits of music through the eras that i you know as i tell my story so it's got a bit of both to it uh, I'm not sure how 
I'd flog it or where it's going to go. I mean, even if it's just for the blind, it might be okay, but they might not. <laughs> but but people, other people have said, oh, you must do a talking book because they yes. say I have a nice speaking voice. So I will. There's that to think of. And then I've already got loads of gigs for next year because they're all ones that got cancelled this year. So they've just moved them forward a year. But one has learnt from this virus not to take anything for granted, and you can't really make plans. So um, I can say I'm really busy next year, but who knows, I might be locked up again with everyone else. I know, this is true. And were you, I mean, just lastly, I mean, you know, because you mentioned going towards the blues, and obviously, you know, other artists go to you know different direction. David definitely went for a, lots of different styles and ended up in the world of jazz. Did Have you sort of dabbled in any other musical kind of genres? I mean... Well, my Indian stuff, yes, um, which is always very kind of trancey. I like, I'm rather fond of trance music too, but it's, I like to have spiritual uplift. But I don't do jazz, and I uh, specifically I don't do jazz for a very good reason. I've always said that jazz is for people that wear suits, maybe, and blues is for people who wear jeans and want to dance. So I prefer the fun element of blues. And you've got I find the lyrics are much more amusing. Uh, I mean, jazz has got some great standards, but to be a great jazz singer, you've got to know the lyrics of all these. And, and you go into it with a jazz band and you do, I don't know, I can't give you anything but love or whatever. You do jazz standards. And I like to sing songs that I've written myself with grooves that have kind of grown organically around the musicians. And, and I love Boogie Woogie and... Uh, Chicago blues and New Orleans blues. It's such a, it's such a wide range of music. The blues that it's not just uh, one little thing. I'm always amazed though that this country, which was the home, the early home of the blues, and you know people like Clapton playing in the early '60s in the Yardbirds. This was when the blues came to Britain, and yet all these um, companies like the Ivor Novello Awards and all the these things to do with the music business. They honour classical music, folk music, jazz music, and they never have a category for blues. And occasionally I'll write into some of the uh, affiliated companies. I think they're called Basker and MCPS and PRS, all these things where musicians become a part of, a bit like unions and things. And I write right in and complain. Nobody ever replies. I've probably written to the wrong place. But blues is ignored in this country. So I just truck, carry on trucking on, doing what I love, and uh, amazed that people haven't got wise to it yet. Yes, absolutely. And did you, just lastly, I mean, did you sort of um, listen to the main man, Tony DeFries' podcast that's just come out, sort of talking through his kind of world and life? And um, yes. I did it. it well, for people who, who don't know how to get it, it's, you go on something called mainmanlabel.com, and that's their podcast. And it's pretty amazing that he did talk because he's been completely out of circulation for 30 years. And somebody wrote in on my Facebook page saying, how on earth did you get a quote from De Vries on the cover of your book when most people thought he was dead, you know, because when the Bowie main man breakup happened, he disappeared totally off the scene. He didn't go on and manage other artists. He tried for a bit with Mick Ronson, but that kind of didn't work. And very soon it that stopped. And uh, so I think it's a rather good podcast. I'm surprised not... 
more people have heard of it. And in fact, I was recording on Monday. I'm reading sections from my book, which I think will be on a, on the same mainmanlabel.com podcast next week or the week after, depending on how long it takes the guy to do the editing. Right, yes. But I myself don't really <laughs> listen to any of these things. But I did listen to the DeFries thing because it's 30 years since I heard his voice. It's like a ghost from the past. He sounded exactly the same. Obviously, he looks a little bit different, and his beard is white instead of brown. And he always had, in my day, loads of Afro frizzy hair. There's a picture in the book of him and me and Bowie backstage at the pork thing, and he's got a massive Afro. But he he was a lovely soul and really changed Bowie's life. Yes. Um, and well, actually, I'm sad that Bowie never was big-hearted enough, really, to talk about how much help his career had from De Vries. Um There was a BBC thing called Finding Fame, a three-part thing on Bowie, and the last part directed really nicely by Francis Watley. And I said to him, how, you've done the first five years of Bowie's career, but you've left out you've left out De Vries. And he said, well, on orders from Bowie. So he had to obey, otherwise he wouldn't have got some of the rare footage. But, you know, who knows what goes on between manager and artist? It's a very kind of incest, incestuous relationship sometimes. Kind yes. of love-hate. I guess. And it's got to be hate at the end, sadly, between them. Well, it's interesting because his voice really surprised me because having seen him, you know, the look and the afro and and thinking what sort of person would be able to work and do what he did, I expected someone a, much more like almost the Martin Scorsese talking at 100 miles an hour, not somebody who was so sort of almost studious and thought through. It's like, but you, you know, he'd created this kind of crazy world around him, but he seemed like an absolute gentleman with everything else. Yeah, he didn't always have the afro, though. I mean, that happened to be one era. He then cut it short. But he was the ultimate Jewish, legal-minded businessman with a cigar in his mouth. But he spoke gently and quietly and swayed from side to side like an like a large teddy bear. And I always felt that he was the captain of the good ship main man with, you know, myself and Bowie. And then, of course, there was Mick Ronson. And for a while, there was Iggy Pop and Lou Reed and, well, obviously, Angie Bowie and Cherry Vanilla. I mean, there was all sorts of nutters and weirdos and freaks and everything all swaying about on this boat that was being steered, hopefully, in the right direction by... Uh, the the father figure, which was um, Tony DeFries. Yes. And I, I respect him greatly for what he did. But I think when the big breakup happened, just everyone, you know, he and Bowie just had this acrimonious ending, bloody lawsuits and, you know, litigations. And it, and it really, I mean, I'd never even been inside a lawyer's office or a police station, not even for a parking ticket. And suddenly I was fighting for my freedom, not understanding a word that, you know, when lawyers speak legalese, I haven't a clue what they're talking about. And I had to deal with all this garbage for quite a few years until I was free to record again in 1980. Yes, which must be quite freaky. I suppose that was the dis- not uh, without being too picky, but that was a slightly disappointing thing with that David Bowie exhibition, David Bowie is, that kind of Tony and Angie, who you would probably realise without 
those two, Bowie wouldn't have been who he is or was. No, he no reference at all to to those two. Which, I mean, Angie used to buy all his clothes in the early days. She found Susie, who then later married Mick Ronson, to who did his great haircuts, and there was that marvelous Pierre Laroche who did all the the zigzag and all the designs on his face uh, for his makeup. He'd also done the makeup for Mick Jagger. I mean, it was very unusual to have these odd people having such strange facial makeup. So they don't get a mention. I, I, they, the exhibition was held at the Victoria and Albert Museum, which is literally two minutes, one minute walk from where I live. I literally see the V&A Museum every day when I walk, go for my morning walk. And they asked me to be a guest speaker on it, which I did with Holly Johnson from Frankie Goes to Hollywood. And and, and somebody else, and they all came up with loads of notes. To, for them. We, ha we each had to talk for an hour. I don't do notes. I got so many stories from that year that I just had fun telling stories. But I, I stop at 1975. I cannot go. I don't talk any further because by then Bowie was in America and I stayed in England. And he was well known for slightly cutting dead all the people that he had dealings with before. He wanted an, a new start. I respected him for that. He just got on with his life and me with mine yes and just just last i mean if you could have said something to an 18 year old self would is, is there anything that you you over the decades would would just kind of whisper in their ear and just say something words of wisdom you mean yes or words of caution the word, well, i could can't be. think i wouldn't have listened <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's very nice to say if i knew then what i know now well, if I'd known then what I know now and I was 18, I'd have just blown everyone's mind because nobody would have understood me. Um, and No, I, I can't think of a thing I would have said. Probably um, don't wear such high heels. You might regret it in the future and you'll get bad knees. Yes, but any, luckily those are all sorted now, aren't they? So that's, that should be good. Yes, I'm bionic. It's amazing. I was very <laughs> lucky my other new knee was put in... Um, last may so it was before the lockdown and the most important thing when you do that is to have aqua water aqua size and for the last 30 years i swam every morning for half an hour doing water exercises literally every morning at about 7 30 because i live right near a swimming pool but it's closed so i know the virus is dreadful and everyone's suffering but for me if you have to say to me what have you suffered most with? It's because I can't get into a swimming pool, which is criminal. It keeps people healthy and mentally in good state of mind. And I don't think the virus actually likes being near chlorine in water. I think it would have it would have gone somewhere else. So <laughs> I'm really unhappy about that. But that's just me being personally really trivial about this whole blasted thing. Yes, weird times. But look... I hopefully come and see you down in down towards this very soon. This is this is only about three weeks away, isn't it? So this is exciting. Yeah, let me see if I can find the 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 link, and I'll try and email it to you because oh, yes. I'm not very good. I'm so non-techno. I do have this Facebook page, but I have to email 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 all my stuff to the, the woman who actually puts it on for me, so I don't have to really get too involved with it. But sometimes I put on. I'm well known for writing occasionally about what I encounter in my early morning dawn walks in Hyde Park. Yes. Which, um, you know, is quite interesting sometimes, to me anyway. 
but anyway, you, have you got enough, David? <laughs> yeah, we've, we've, yes, I was just I was looking at the Dave Thomas kind of website, but there's nothing on it. Well, I think it must really? have been. Well, no, there is stuff on it, but I, it seems to be a lot of gigs, which might be. I don't know what year that was, actually, but it's obviously didn't happen. Well, he's probably. Um, Unless it's next year. He's probably. I'm just I'm just going to see if I can open this thing. And and tell you about it so that you can look it up. For, do you have a pen? Yes. Um, okay, because you might have to call them. Because I'm really it's it's the Bannum Barrel. Oh, and I haven't left a telephone number. Honestly. Bannum Barrel. Bannum uh, um, Kenning Hall Road, Bannum, NR sixteen two H E. Well, the good thing is that if he if he emailed very recently, it means it's it's potentially still on rather than no he yeah he emailed this morning so yes. I'm just I'm just gonna I'll 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 send it on to you um, can you remind me what your email address oh is? yeah well um it's D C E um yes David Charles it's D C E A S T A D C E A S T-A-U-G-H. There you go. The venue. What's on? We are and gmail.com. Yeah, that's the one. Okay. Well, I'm going to send it to you, but um, <clears throat> he's got a lovely voice. I mean, he really has a, 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 a great voice. So I'm just I'm just pressed a, a send button so you've got it. Oh, I can hear it come. Oh, it's here. It's right Isn't there. Isn't it? I, I'm assuming all you finished the interview and you've yes. cut all this garbage out, <laughs> oh, <laughs> this twaddle. Brilliant. Well, there you go. Event bright. Dave Thomas, Fine City Blues. Well, this is fantastic. Okay, well, that's that's brilliant. When is your show? When do you? Well, are you well, on daily, weekly? Well, it's um, it's kind of repeated a few times. It's a Wednesday and a Saturday, so I can sort of put this. Together and I can, if you want, which is could be potentially good. I could send you the link to the interview and then you could put it up as well, so that. Oh yeah, please do because I do know how to send it to the person who would put it on my Facebook. Oh, thing. they would love that actually, and I really okay. and I really hope the book goes fantastically because it is. I have to say that you do have a lot of amazing. It doesn't just putter out after five years, does it? It's it sort of chugs along in, in a rather delightful. No, but that my I can see the problem I'm going to have is that where do you promote a book? Perhaps in the without COVID, you could be doing book signings in bookshops, or I mean, I don't I don't move in mega circles anymore where I can get on the Graham Norton show. Um, and although one of my cousins actually started Anglia Television, Sir Aubrey Buxton, I don't even know if Anglia exists anymore. Probably not. So you know, where do you go and promote things? anymore yes well I, I, do you, yeah. do you, where do you live in Norwich in Norwich so um it, you know what I love about Norwich the charity shops in Magdalene Street oh yes absolutely yes you find great books there's fabulous old bookstores there um I, I and do you know I'm so bonkers I bought my car my Citroen Berlingo it's a little van from something called Duff Morgan and Whiffler Road in Norwich, just where that huge Asda is, and and I still go every year religiously up to Whiffler Road 
and so that they service my car. I've never had it serviced anywhere else. So I go once a year to Norwich, leave my car, and then walk around and just potter up and down Magdalen Street, and then drive back to London. Is that not bonkers? Indeed, that is slightly bonkers, but let's face it, we've all done such strange things, but I won't go into the details. I did something very similar with my car, but... Let's not uh, go into that detail. This, sadly, is the end. Thank you ever so much for listening, if you still are. And a huge thank you to Dana Gillespie for giving me the time for that interview. And as I said, her book, um, Weren't Born, A Man is out and available, I do believe, well, very soon. Check it out. Buy it. It will um, blow your mind. The photographs are stunning. This has been um, David Eastall. I probably said that. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. And also all these interviews have been archived and uh, podcasts. So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. Indeed. Anyway, look, have a great week and stay safe.